The scripture reading for this morning is Romans 1, verses 16 to 25. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Those of you that are familiar with Romans uh, wonder why I left out some of the challenging stuff. Oh, we'll get there, and I'll read it. But I wanted to set the stage first because um, the point that Paul's making is a broad one about a lack of worship. Part of freedom, or part of understanding freedom, means understanding the bondage that is the alternative. Part of understanding and being gripped by and moved by the good news is understanding the bad. Part of the beauty of the kingdom is recognizing the kingdom that we are rescued from which is a parasitic kingdom of evil. Part of the sweetness of the gospel is tasted by understanding something about how bitter the alternative to it is. In verse 24 and 26 and 28 of chapter 1, it says God gave them up to three different things. Paul's explaining in three steps, and he's not attempting to be comprehensive, but he is Um, beginning with the deepest thing about us, which is our worship. God gave that up to idolatry. Then another thing, not quite as deep, but still deep about us, which is gender and sexuality. 
God gave that up. And then he talks about harm in community. God gave us up to that, and we have the longest vice list in the New Testament. Idolatry is what it looks like when we're ultimately worshiping ourself. The most striking thing to me about this passage of Scripture is not um, the vigor with which God points out how judgmental we are in chapter 2. It's not the descriptions of the curse and how it affects humanity, which is what 24 and 26 are getting to. It's that Paul can't help but worship as he considers these things. Isn't that interesting in verse 25? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Even as Paul is about to describe how humans are so prone to living however they want or prone to a moralism that's hypocritical and judgmental, this is chapter 2 that we'll get to in a minute. He can't help but worship God because he's, Paul is constantly aware, even as he's writing about the effects of the curse, the decision Adam and Eve made to stop trusting the good heart of God that unleashed disease and idolatry and death and broken sexuality and harmful community across the world. The shorthand for that is the curse. The world cries out for redemption. Paul will write a few chapters later because it is not only humans that are broken. It is the very earth itself. But he begins talking about worship. We see this in ourselves. We would worship the things of the earth rather than the creator. Our desires are deeply affected by the curse, and we're tempted to believe that things, rather than God, be they the happiness of our children, or the anemic promise that if we have a certain amount of money in our 401k, we'll actually feel secure in the world. Those are the idolatries that we see around us. There are more. And Paul isn't condemning, he's describing the natural state of man after the curse of Genesis 3 is to worship self through idols. As I've been studying this book, and especially this section, this is a theological explanation of a story that Jesus told, I think, in Luke chapter 15, where he talks about two sons. We remember it as the story of the prodigal son. This is the return of the prodigal son. I believe it's the third painting Rembrandt did on this theme. Jesus called it the story of two sons. We would do well to call it what Jesus called it. There are two ways of running from the embrace of the Father. One is through living however we want. And the other is a white-knuckled moralism that's hypocritical and judgmental and just as, if not more, harmful in community. What both brothers need is to receive the embrace of the Father. One does, after trying to make it on his own. 
doing everything he felt like doing. And then the other in the back is judging. His face behind is dripping with judgmentalism, probably fear, anger. I don't know if there are more harsh words in the scriptures from one human to another than the way the older brother describes the younger. Paul talks about a lack of worship and then broken sexuality and then broken community and then our tendency to judgmentalism and hypocrisy and finding our own way in chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, he's going to say, there is no hope for us in ourselves. Lack of worship leads to disintegration. Verse 26 and 27 of Romans 1 says this, For this reason God gave them up, second time he says that, to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. The second level of disintegration that Paul talks about The second description of the curse as it affects us is a broad biblical concept, but Paul's being quite specific here. It's the desire that is non-hetero desire, right? If I can just put an umbrella over it. What Paul is saying is that's an effect of the fall. This is not in the list of vices, though it's in other lists of vices in different format. This is a description of how the curse affects the world. Christians should be the least surprised by this. Christians should be the most compassionate. First thing I was taught with respect to non-heterosexuality was to mock it which is profoundly unchristian. Of course, it's sin to be sexually active with anyone that you're not in the covenant of marriage with. We know that, right? But does it have to do with salvation? Nope. Salvation is in Christ alone who pursues in love. And does Christ say to anyone after they receive his love, Live however you want, which is what Paul was being accused of. The way he preached the gospel was so loving that people accused him of saying, and then live however you want. Does Christ say that to anyone? No. Is that all there is to say about this? No, of course not. Our denomination has both a position paper on sexuality and a pastoral letter about it. Because it's a tender and complicated matter. But here, Paul explains to us, so we shouldn't be surprised. This is how the curse affects the world. This is one of the ways. The third level that he talks about is what happens in community without his rescuing love. The third time, he says, gave them up is in verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. 
They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. That feels <laughs> disjointed to me in the midst of these other ones. But it's important. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Paul's saying the deepest part of us is worship, and God gave us up to worship other things. Not pushed us, but allowed the curse to affect the world this way. A less deep, but still deep part of us, our sexuality. And without his saving grace, it's going to be partially or wholly broken. And then the third level is how we actually do community with one another, and it's going to be all kinds of ugly without his gospel and saving grace. And it is no coincidence. Whoops, I was going to bring that up while I read it. I forgot. You guys want me to read it again? Let's not. I think it's no coincidence that after Paul speaks, in a way that really quiets the room, doesn't it? He immediately starts talking about our potential to judge one another. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Throughout the New Testament, sometimes judgment is called a wisdom category, and sometimes it's where we're judging the being of another. You know what I mean? We're, of course, called to live wise lives, lives and that will we will need judgment for that. But when we look at another and think, maybe in passing, maybe thoroughly, something along the lines of them being less human for whatever reason, be it moral or otherwise, we're doing something profoundly unchristian. It's a religious spirit in us most of the time. Paul's going to talk about it throughout chapter 2. The Gospels that were, uh, he says in verse 23 and 24 of chapter 2, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. But what we miss is that his kindness is to lead us to repentance. Talk a little bit about that in a second. But before that, it says in verses 6 through 11, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. 
but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. This is why I showed the picture of the prodigal. Paul's using theological terms to remind us of our tendency to judgment, to remind us of our tendencies to hypocrisy. Doing good in God's economy and Paul's theology begins with a warmed heart. It's aware that God pursued us in love and then we respond by giving him our allegiance, which is heart and mind and will. And then we learn repentance. I think repentance is a word that is probably pretty unpopular in the 21st century. Maybe it's always been unpopular. What does it mean? The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks the question, what is repentance unto life? Because, friends, even as the, the, the messages of these chapters are dark, it is because we're called into light, partly through the explanation of how powerful the curse is around the world, how much more powerful then is God's light, which guides us into all life. So the Westminster Shorter Catechism doesn't just ask the question, what's repentance, but knows that repentance gives us life. Repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. If these scriptures trouble you, we have such a gift from Christ. When we notice idolatry in our own life, we repent and hold it up to the good shepherd who tends to it. When we notice broken over desires with respect to our sexuality, we hold them up to the good shepherd, ask him to tend to them, heal us and make us whole. When we recognize any of these tendencies in community, probably one thing on that list we could be accused of, rightly so, this week, we hold them up and say to him, forgive me and make me whole. I think verse 4 of chapter 2 is the key for us. There's a lot for us to understand about the fall. And then there's the daily grace that we receive in the kingdom Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? When we're judgmental or live however we want, two ways of running from God, we are presuming on him. And what we've forgotten in those moments is that God's kindness leads us to repentance. That's our hope in worship, in life, in community, in family, in church, is that we live lifestyles in keeping with repentance, which sounds harsh, but it is the only life-giving alternative and is, in fact, not harsh if we rightly understand it. I don't love to repent, but the alternative is bondage. A lack of worship leads to disintegration, but his kindness frees us from judgment and hypocrisy. And I should probably have added licentiousness, so there's the 
one way of avoiding the kindness of God, and it's being moral and judging others who are not as moral. And there's another way of avoiding the kindness of God, that is to allow idolatry and our broken sexuality and our harmful tendencies in community to rule our lives. And the other way is receiving the Father's kind love. If the effect of the fall is that we naturally worship ourselves, then praise God that he has rescued us from that and called us to worship him. If one of the effects of fall, the fall, if one of the effects of the fall is that our desires are disordered, thanks be to God that we can hold them up to him and that he is a good shepherd who tends to them and heals. If our tendencies in community are to harm and not to love, thanks be to God that he frees us from those into repentance unto life, which is a saving grace. At the end of chapter 3, Paul says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So the world is as profoundly cursed as Paul says it is. I mean, isn't it incredible that 2,000 years later, these words are still as relevant as they are? Isn't this what we see in community? And broken desires and a lack of interest or ability or knowledge to worship God? And then don't we see our tendencies to judge or to get through with white-knuckled morality that harms us and neighbor? And the reason Paul, I think, is being so clear about the bad news is because of the sweetness and light and grace and peace of the gospel. We're not saved from partial need, friends. We don't kind of need a little bit of help. We don't kind of need a little bit of salvation. We don't kind of need some grace. We need the full work of Jesus Christ to both save us and then guide us into lives of life. That's right, Micah. It's my infant son, if you're wondering. The opportunity is to stop running. And it is before you. Flannery O'Connor wrote, all you need is need. And that is true. And is found by receiving the embrace of the Father. Would you pray with me? Father, where I have represented your word accurately, help us all to be gripped by it and understand it the best of our ability. Where I have not, let it float away. Jesus, you are so kind to pursue us in love while we were yet sinners. We are so grateful for your work and the fact that you are a good shepherd who is ever patient 
and always kind and loving. Holy Spirit, we praise and thank you that we can worship you and that we are drawn to worship you. Would you lift up our hearts that we might indeed magnify your name because it is the overflow of our heart to love you. Amen.